Hello, I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We gather members of our ICS community here to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. This semester, we're tackling some big questions. We're asking our guests to talk about the themes of evil, resistance, and judgment as they come up in the course of their work, their studies, and their lives. I'm Theron Tolsma, and I'm also a junior member at ICS. Today, we're talking to Andrew Chebet, who is nearing the end of his PhD studies in the Department for the Study of Religion at the University of Toronto. Andrew is an ICS alum and has joined the podcast before to talk about language, thought, and the ideas of Maurice Merleau-Ponty. So we'll welcome Andrew back to the podcast in just a minute. something that just irks you, that gnaws at you, that people just don't understand? For our first segment, Here's My Thought, we're giving folks the chance to set their record straight on any issue of their choice, big or small, in five minutes or less. This week, it's my turn. I'm Abby, a new junior member here at ICS, and here's my thought. I'm just going to come right out and say it. Labradoodles are the worst. Oh, You combine one of the most lovable breeds of all time with one of the ugliest and snobbiest? Whoop-dee-doodle-doo! Honestly, they are right up there with Shih Tzus and Chihuahuas for the worst dog breeds of all time. The other day, I saw a Chihuahua chasing one of those crazy thick black squirrels that are so common here in Toronto. I really don't know what this dog was trying to accomplish, given the fact that it was roughly the same size as the squirrel it was chasing, and I'm not exaggerating. So now that we've got an idea about the level of stupid I'm talking about here, back to the Labradoodle. Don't get me wrong, I love dogs. Dogs are great. But even the creator of the Labradoodle regrets making them, calling them, and I quote, a Frankenstein's monster of a breed. Labs, on the other hand, are one of the nicest dog breeds. They are friendly, active, and they don't have weirdly proportioned bodies with hair that's halfway between a nice, soft, lovable fur and your mom's perm from the 80s. Why did they have to go and ruin a perfectly good dog breed like a lab by mixing it with some curly-haired hoity-toity poodle? For our second segment, we at ICS are reckoning with the problem of evil, exploring possible modes of resistance, and discerning moments of judgment as a community. So we're asking our guests to talk about how these issues intersect with their work and lives. Today, we're joined once again by Andrew Tebbett, longtime friend of the podcast and ICS alum. Andrew did his master's thesis on the role of Christian charity in the political thought of Hannah Arendt. For his PhD, he's been studying the thought of Hegel, particularly 
Religion and Forgiveness in Hegel's Phenomenology, a bit of which she's going to share with us now. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you very much for having me. It's very nice to be back in here. our new and renewed podcasting yeah, in a studio. Yeah, different space. That's right, down the street. Yeah. yeah. So I obviously just took it upon myself to summarize your work. So would you want? Would there be anything you'd want to add to that? How would you summarize kind of what you've been working on in your PhD? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I get asked this question uh, quite a bit. You know, because someone near the end of their PhD should be able to talk about it. Um, <laughs> but I. I, I it's about forgiveness and religion, um, specifically in Hegel's uh, work, Phenomenology of Spirit. Um, and I sometimes I'm uncertain as to which one of those two terms to begin with when, when people ask me what I'm working on. So it's kind of, in a sense, there's two topics to my uh, research. Um, and more properly, I guess the, the, the theme or topic of, of, of my research is the intersection between uh, forgiveness and religion. And, and specifically, thinking about forgiveness and religion as intersecting practices of collective self-expression or, you know, more concretely, I guess, intersecting ways in which we as communities say, this is who we are mm -hmm. and communicate our sense of who we are fundamentally as, as a community and also as, as human beings. So just to sort of flesh out a little bit about, about how that makes sense of what forgiveness is. In a sense, I try to, following Hegel, I try to make sense of forgiveness as, as a community's self-defining act. So, so what, who we are and how we define ourselves is kind of coincides with what we're able to recognize or forgive um, and that which we can't forgive sort of falls out of our sense of what it means to be we or what it means to belong to who we are. Um, forgiveness is also um, for Hegel a kind of acknowledgement that something matters beyond our, our powers of um, comprehension or understanding, right? It's, it's this sort of gesture that says I can't necessarily rationalize or understand what I'm confronted with, but I, I'm going to try to make sense of it. That's a kind of forgiving, in a sense, of a forgiving stance um, um, for Hegel, I think. And, and so to try to tie those two things together, uh, I think what's, what's interesting about forgiveness for Hegel is that how we define ourselves ends up coinciding with, with that gesture of excessive acceptance or, or, or a sense that, you know, this... Uh, this thing matters beyond our capacity to understand it. Um, that that gesture is, in a sense, implicitly a kind of making sense of who we are and how we think of ourselves as a as a kind of community. I mean, what I try to do with that that sort of coincidence of saying who we are and and offering a, a sort of gesture of forgiveness, I try to say if it's true that that forgiveness intersects with with religious discourse or religious language, that means that religion is in, intrinsically self-reflective or self-critical. Like if, if religion is is on its own terms answerable to a kind of forgiving gesture. Um, that means it's always kind of open to that which might sort of appear out of nowhere and and be disruptive or foreign or unprecedented. Um, so what I try to say is that forgiveness has this kind of under, underlying self-critical potential. You know, another term that comes to mind is Jeffrey Stout's idea of imminent critique. So I'm kind of getting at that kind of idea through through Hegel's phenomenology. And so I, I use that to... that intrinsic self-critique, ultimately to challenge the discourse of public reason. Um, so I have my sights on sort of political theory and thinking about what it means to communicate in the public sphere. And the specific challenge that I, that I try to offer is of the idea that in order to be publicly relevant, um, religious language or religious expression has to translate itself into, quote unquote, the neutral language of the public sphere. Yeah. Um, I'm not really so convinced that there is that there really is a kind of neutral language. Like I know it's possible to establish that in a kind of provisional sense, but I, I don't really, like some political theorists seem to think that there exists this kind of neutral 
uh, language of public discourse. Um, and I'm not so sure that, that there is that kind of substantive neutral language. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so that's one point. And the second point is if given that lack of that neutral language and given that religion is sort of intrinsically self-critical, like there's enough public reason already within the logic of religious discourse such that we don't have to try to find some other language in which to translate religion. It doesn't necessarily solve all our problems. And it actually kind of complicates things because what that means is that the public is a kind of diversity of, of religious languages without any kind of fundamental neutral terms to appeal mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. um, but I think reckoning, that's I think a more realistic account of what it means to, to exist in public. And I think, I think it's that diversity, that diversity of religious idioms, as I, as I call them um, in my dissertation, that's kind of, that's the struggle of, of being in public. And I think the phenomenological intersection of religion and forgiveness that Hegel provides helps us towards figuring out what it might be to negotiate that irreducible difference. Hmm. I think in the irreconcilable, um, something that you cannot forgive, say like, like those taboo things in culture where it's like, that's just not okay, we don't accept that. That goes to the very heart of what you see as like the most valuable and the most fundamental morality is the things that we don't accept and like we we don't forgive that especially in like law and stuff the things that you don't forgive are the things that really define who we are because this is what we value the most this is who we are and this goes against everything that we stand for to try to get at the um connection between identity and forgiveness you might say that adopt a kind of unforgiving stance or to say like that i that i can't tolerate mm -hmm. is you know explicitly a comment about that thing that you find intolerable but it's also implicitly a comment about the limit of your comfort, the limit of your self-identity. Mm -hmm. um, so the, I guess the, the, the only point that I was trying to make there in that sort of quick sketch was that forgiveness sort of resides at, at that limit. Forgiveness mm -hmm. is kind of at issue in those moments when we are deciding who we are, um, what we will accept, what we won't accept. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the sense in which forgiveness and identity coincide. Self-identity is, is, is as much about an attitude that we have towards you know, what's outside of us what's mm -hmm. what's other as it is an attitude about what's inside or, or, or mm -hmm. who we are and you know for, mm -hmm. for hegel hegel's understanding of self-identity is that kind of underlying intrinsic relation between self and other okay. um, and he'll want to say ultimately that forgiveness is a kind of recognition of the of that intrinsic relationship between self and other um, so there's more to be said i think for hegel beyond just i you know i don't want to see that i don't forgive it Mm -hmm. Right. That thing, that, that other thing that mm -hmm. I, I'm unable to reconcile. We negotiate our identities as, as individuals, as communities in terms of forgiveness, you might say. But Hegel would want, I think he wants to define or encourage us to understand forgiveness as the recognition that we are, we are who we are based on that or in that relationship with that other thing. So yeah. we might not like it um, and it might really trouble us and we might not decide to accept it, but we should at least know that that's, that's us working our, our identity out in relation to that thing. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, so obviously, Hegel's terminology is very complex and very particular to him. So it might be a good idea, I think, to maybe parse out some of the terms that come to the fore when you're talking about Hegel's thought on forgiveness. So would you be able to parse out for us what forgiveness exactly does mean for Hegel and like the role that it plays? I'll try to. I'll introduce two uh, terms in order to get to get back to forgiveness. Um, and they are recognition, which I think I, I mentioned already, and um, conscience. And they're related terms, and they're very important for understanding Hegel, um, and they're, they're quite distinctive of how Hegel thinks about things. Um, uh, 
And it's basically that when we start talking about ourselves as individuals, our, our, our self-identity as individuals are, are intrinsically dependent on others and on the acknowledgement and recognition and, and feedback um, of other people. And this it doesn't seem that surprising at first, but his Hegel's point is not, it's not just that other people are important to us or, or they matter to us. In a sense, it's that they are the matter hmm. or the material of our, of our self-experience, right? Hmm. So you might think of yourself as a independent individual and you might also agree that, you know, yeah, I have friends and family and other people who are really important to me. Um, that it's, it's those people through whom I define myself. Um, but Hegel wants to show, like, he would affirm that, of course, but for, for Hegel, we don't become individuals and then enter social relationships or relationships with other people. We are, we are, our individuality and our, our attitude and understanding of ourselves is formed and constituted in relationship. So each of us had a kind of story of, of becoming a self-reflective individual in, pro, in processes and relations of recognition. And I, I like to think about experiences of, of being like ashamed or embarrassed that really help to drive this point home because in those moments when you feel embarrassed you know you see the eyes of everyone else on you and it kind of undermines your sense of who you are and you find that there's this there's this other set of eyes or this other voice or this other perspective that has gotten inside you in a sense and it's not something that you disagree with um, it's another perspective that you find sort of poses a challenge to your very sense of of yourself and you want to you find that you want to change it and of course you can't, it's another person, it's another perspective. You could never really get inside the other perspective and change it. And yet you, you, you see that other, other point of view get at the, at the heart of who you are and you know, it's uncomfortable. So mm -hmm. it's experiences like that, that, that sort of, uh, they're not, they're not, they don't happen all the time, but they, but when they do happen, they, they, I think remind us that, um, we do the premise of our, of our self-understanding or of, of who we think we are is that kind of feedback on ourselves that we get from other people. I sort of alluded to this already, but we inhabit various forms of, of recognition, various kinds of social roles. We're sort of little communities walking around. Um, we don't look like that. That's kind of <laughs> what we are uh, for Hegel. Um, and these social roles, these systems of recognition don't always neatly uh, fit together. And what Hegel helps us understand is that the tensions that we experience in, in you know, choices and what to do with our, with our lives um, are often tensions tensions between systems of recognition um, as opposed to just choices about what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do. And what comes to mind here is uh, Sartre's example um, of the student. He talks about this in his lecture. Uh, it's in the book, Existentialism and Human Emotions. I think the lecture is just called Existentialism. He's talking about sort of ethical anxiety or ethical anguish or being faced with a choice that, that we find ourselves unable to um, decide about. And he mm -hmm. talks about the student that comes to him and asks him, you know, should I, or I'm, I'm called to go join the French resistance and fight, but I'm, I also feel compelled to stay at home and uh, take care of my mo my mother who's lost her husband and is mourning the death of my older brother. Um, so there's this allegiance to, or obligation to this family member versus my sense of calling to go and, and fight. Like, what should I do? And one of Sartre's points there is that in addition to being a really, really tough choice for this, for this student of his, it's also a conflict of, of different kinds of obligation, a conflict of different kinds of ethics or different kinds of societies. Mm -hmm. You know, in, work, in working out those tensions and you know, deciding to make things out of our lives, we are sort of working with the, the material that those social relationships, those systems of recognition um, provide for us. Mm -hmm. um, and Sartre's point 
uh, there. And this gets us to talking about conscience is that when you're really dealing with a situation that seems undecidable like that, you are confronted with a, a situation of conscience. Like there's no, there's no divine command or, or divine voice that this student can appeal to. He's just got to decide. He's just kind of, mm-hmm. he's just got to go with, with, with something. He's got to take action in some, in some way and make that action kind of the substance of his life. Those kind of choices, when, when, when we're faced with them, or there are experiences of conscience, Hegel would say, and they, they highlight the, the inescapability of, of interpretation or, or of discernment or of judgment um, in human experience. The fact that we can't, although we often try to do this, we can't, we can't fundamentally disavow our responsibility to, to interpret our surroundings and make these kind of choices. Each of us inhabits a kind of singular interpretive standpoint, um, mm-hmm. and ultimately we, we can't ever step outside of that responsibility to interpret. And because we can't step outside of it, that's in a sense for Hegel, that responsibility to interpret or to discern, that's kind of what's absolute about us. Um, and he uses the term like absolute to get at that, that kind of experience of conscience. And this, I, this is one, one place in which the intersection of religion, of religion and forgiveness um, comes up. Because in a sense for Hegel, religion is, is, is a practice of pointing to the absolute. It's saying like the absolute is nothing that you see in front of us. It's beyond the visible world um it's sort of out of this world so mm-hmm. he understands religion as practices of, of bearing witness or giving voice to the absolute that's irre- that, that is irreducible to anything that we can muster or create or master ourselves but this experience of conscience also points to the fact that that absolute also resides like in our hands like we are responsible for, for deciding how to articulate that absolute so if if religion is a kind of pointing to an absolute beyond us we can't get away from the responsibility ourselves to to figure out how to do that pointing. That's the sense in which religious language or religious practice, that, that pointing to um, what's ultimately true or ultimately real, um, is a kind of conscientious stance um, for Hegel. And, and it's bec- because of that that forgiveness intersects with, um, with religion. Um, and just to sort of touch on forgiveness there, like another powerful thing about Hegel is, or Hegel's account of conscience is that it, it, like it, it seems like a... a, a totally singular experience, right? Like you are the one that has to choose whether to go to war or whether to, um, uh, to stay home and take care of, of your mother. But it's also, that's a responsibility you feel. And because, because you're responsible to make that choice, conscience um, or interpretive singularity, as I've, as I've thematized it, is a kind of recognition or it's something that can be recognized about us. Um, and so we, we often talk about conscience as the sort of inner voice that only makes sense to us. But Hegel wants to say, no, that's actually true of, of each of us. And at the sort of absolute level of human interaction, as it were, conscience can be the context for recognition. It can be a kind of communal experience. Um, and, and to recognize conscience, he says, is, is to be forgiving, is to recognize that we can't ever get out of our interpretive responsibilities. Like every attempt that we make to do the right thing, to do the good, or to give voice to to God, is going to be an interpretive act. Mm-hmm. And to properly acknowledge that that fact is to is to forgive its interpretive um, status. Mm-hmm. This always makes me think of how you know, Jesus says, "You've got to forgive first in order for to receive God's forgiveness." Like in, at least in a few um, moments in the Gospels, Jesus sort of hands over the initiative of forgiveness to human beings. And it's, it's, it's through that act that the forgiveness of God is achieved on earth, as it were. Um, and this is very much what, what Hannah Arendt, how she thinks about forgiveness. I mean, she actually points to, to Jesus um, as, as the figure who, who I, 
exactly how she says it, but who recognizes um, the initiative, like the, the human initiative of forgiving, um, as opposed to forgiving being something that we defer to to God. You know, so she, yeah, she reads Jesus as declaring that hum, that forgiveness is a human power. That's not to reduce its its religious significance, but it's just to to highlight at least the intersection of forgiveness as a human thing and as something that involves our relationship, you know, with God or with with what's beyond. Mm-hmm. So um, I think as, even though Arendt uh, is more interested in, I think, secularizing forgiveness than Hegel is. Um, at one point, Hegel does call it forgiveness, the appearance of God in, mm-hmm. in the midst of human beings mm-hmm. or in a human community. Um, both, I think, agree that that at the very least, there is this intersection of the human and divine in in forgiveness. Um, we can talk about like you know which comes first. You know, is it divine initiative or human initiative? But both want us to notice or think about forgiveness as involving that kind of intersection hmm. of you know, yeah, of, of the divine or of the religious and the human. Hmm. Why were you drawn to the idea of forgiveness in Hegel's work? Yeah, this is a good question because um, I've been at it for. A long time it's hard to remember like what really brought me uh to these issues um but i i guess i can i can say like i tend to or how i tend to think about forgiveness is it's not just a moral problem it's not just a problem about um how do we respond to immoral or evil deeds um, it is that but i think it's more than that it's also not just a religious problem i think what's what's powerful and interesting about forgiveness just getting to sort of the the things i said earlier about my project it it sort of gets at the heart of our basics our basic perceptions or intuitions about about who we are um, it's kind of this sort of fundamental gesture or discourse that that comes up in in sort of ne- negotiating and figuring out um, you know what it means to be a person um, what it means to be seen as a person an agent and what it means to be a, a community um, so it's it has a for me it has a kind of social ontological significance that makes makes it interesting beyond just you know moral questions or, or religious questions, even though those those find their way into obviously any discussion about forgiveness, because usually, you know, forgiveness comes up when something, some wrong has been committed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm especially interested in the implicitly social um, and communicative, or communicative, I should say, uh, realities that are involved in giving and receiving or not giving and not receiving um, forgiveness. Um, mm-hmm. I, one way to think about how forgiveness is significant beyond just I guess just moral questions is that it is I like to think of it as a kind of perception, a kind of way of seeing. And it's it's a way of seeing that perceives the whole, as oft, people often say, warts and all. Um so it it's a kind of perception, let's say, of a of an agent, of someone who acts, that recognizes that, yeah, this person did something partial and one sided and determinate in particular and perhaps transgressive and perhaps evil. Mm-hmm. Um and we might find ways to, to address that immoral or evil thing. But that response um, can never be the last word on on who this person is as as an agent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because forgiveness is the recognition that that action itself is always determinate and partial and potentially transgressive, right? So it's 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 not a, it's not a judgment that necessarily that accepts or resigns itself to evil, but it's a judgment or recognition that there could be no other action or agency that is other than determinate, partial, finite action. Right. So it's, it sort of sees, sees the wider picture of human agency and recognizes that, yeah, you know, things are done that don't always line up with is morally good or morally dutiful. But nevertheless, that's that's the, that's the situation of, of human agency. Right? Just like mm-hmm. thinking about um, Sartre's student. Right. Um, you might you might he might turn out 
to decide that his choice was wrong, but he, you know, he had to make a choice. So I guess one way to sum that up in, in not exactly Hegel's terms, but in more sort of, um, I guess in a more summative way that for Hegel, forgiveness is the recognition of the absolute significance of finitude. Action's always going to be finite. Um, and that's the only way to, to realize or give voice to what we take to be infinite is in finite determinate ways. So that's the sense in which forgiveness is the ultimate kind of recognition. Like that's the ultimate way to recognize or perceive an, an agent is to recognize her, the inevitable finitude of agency of, of who she is. This question is kind of a variation on the point that you just made, I guess. But I mean, I'd just be interested in, in hearing what you think forgiveness adds to the discussion of the themes that we have in mind, evil, resistance, and judgment. And you've kind of hinted towards that already in terms of talking about it as like recognition and recognition of the absolute significance of finitude, which I, I'm all for these pithy kinds of sayings. So I like that a lot. Um, but maybe you could speak to that a bit more. Um, would you think that it's helpful to see like forgiveness as a form of resistance, for example, or is, do you consider it something else entirely in the definition that you gave? I think I think there's a sense in which we can think about forgiveness as a kind of resistance, and I'll I'll try to get there by talking just a, a bit about the other two terms and the the other two yeah th themes that you brought up. Um, just just first with respect to judgment, in many ways I think like judgment is is the feature of human experience that that forgiveness responds to for Hegel. The fact that that mm -hmm. we can't we can't escape the responsibility of making judgments, making situational, finite, potentially transgressive judgment. Our standpoint is one of being involved in the world and that, that calls us to act in certain situations and we, you know, we can't step outside of that. So, so it's, it's inescapable that we're going to have to make judgments and going to have to act. That's another way in which forgiveness recognizes the necessity of finitude or the, or the necessity of contingency, that, mm -hmm. that we, are, we can't not be judges in a sense. And which means that finitude and uh, yeah, perhaps transgression and perhaps evil is in a sense the kind of all pervasive human experience. Like we 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 can't take ourselves out of the of potentially acting doing the wrong thing because um, you know not to do anything for fear of doing the wrong thing is like, is worse than doing the wrong thing. I think Hegel Hegel would say so. In a sense, not not only do we all fall short, but since there's no discernment of what of of doing the good or there's no discernment of the absolute thing that religion points to for example without that finitude then you know all we really have is a kind of falling short and and so that's forgiveness again is is the sort of posture that recognizes that situation as the ultimate situation and again this isn't to excuse or accept evil at the moral or legal level um rather hegel's point is more like this that these registers like morality and and legality are not themselves the absolute terms of recognition. Or another way to say that is critique of, of such registers, critique of, of, of the law and, and um, in, those, in those terms is always possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that sense, Hegel's, Hegel wants, Hegel's a, a kind of forgiveness, it's a kind of refusal to let evil have the last word, um, and while also recognizing that its, that it, its potential is, is inevitable. Um, and in this sense, I think what forgiveness resists is a kind of closure, um, a kind of ending of the story. Um, so again, it's not it's not saying, um, you know, we affirm those evil things necessarily, but it it's it's a resistance to allowing evil to have the last word on, you know, who someone is, um, and you know what's happened in in history. And I think of a really good example of this, just to bring it back a little bit to Arendt, is her book Eichmann in Jerusalem. Um, she sort of performs that kind of 
duality of, of uh, registers, as I mentioned just before, um, you know, between law, for example, and between you know, something beyond law, with which, within which Hegel would include forgiveness. So she concludes, and this is a little bit of a spoiler for anyone who's <laughs> going to read this book, um, <laughs> she ends up concluding that Eichmann uh, must hang for his crimes. So mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a legal sense, like he's guilty and, and, and she's very adamant that he ought to be treated as such. But as, as Ron Kuypers here at ICS has often insisted, um, the fact of, of her book, the fact of her writing this book and trying to understand Eichmann and trying to figure out like what would lead someone to this, to this totally murderous um, and evil set of actions, right? Being one of the sort of more powerful architects of uh, the Nazi regime, um, that desire to, to to try to understand that a little bit to as in, in, in terms I've been using to like perceive the whole is a kind of recognition of Eichmann that, that goes beyond just the legal declaration of his guilt. Right. So again, it's not, it, she doesn't at all excuse Eichmann, but she, in, in writing that book, she sort of performs the active forgiveness and saying, okay, let's, let's not let that guilt, that evil, that, that terror have the last word on, on this. Cause it's, it's worth more to try to understand and keep the conversation going. Um, to sort of set us up, set our, set ourselves up for um, future discoveries. That's interesting. Like, as I was thinking of the examples that you had have been giving, yeah. Um, the way that you were setting it up seemed to be between two kind of, you know, a choice between two fairly equal kind of undecidables, and it's not really a question of like evil intent. It seems to make it a different issue because forgiveness, in those terms, seems to be either choosing to make a judgment or choosing not to make a judgment. And by choosing to forgive, you're choosing not to like make a judgment on a person, for example. But in framing it in terms of like recognition, it's framing it as an act of trying to understand versus choosing not to arrive at a judgment. Right. That, that that's a helpful question. I, and it's it's yeah, and yeah, it's I'm glad you asked because um it's worth clarifying that. What I would say is to think about forgiveness as withholding judgment or judging someone as innocent. Wouldn't I don't think that would be an act of forgiveness in 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 the terms that Hegel wants us to think about it because that would be forgiveness that remains within the terms of law to judge someone as innocent as often happens is is something that often happens within the, the terms of a legal decision right so you don't you don't step outside of the terms of law to judge innocence mm -hmm. that's just a legal designation mm -hmm. right in talking about about conscience Hegel wants us to notice that there's there's more to us than what the law can say about us. Right. So in that sense, I think forgiveness as perception of of the whole, which recognizes the intrinsic relationship of the finite and the, and the infinite, right? the whole situation of human agency, forgiveness of, as that kind of perception can coincide with a guilty judgment at the legal level, I would say, as Arendt's mm -hmm. book, as, as her book implicitly shows us mm -hmm. that she she's on the one hand willing to designate Eichmann as, as guilty and deserving of punishment, but on the other hand, as worth understanding and perceiving further. Not to get, not to find a way for him to be innocent somehow, um, but just to, I think, to refuse to allow his evil to have, have the last word. Yeah, we do want to be careful not to think of forgiveness as, as letting evil go unanswered. Yeah, which is yeah. why I asked the question, because I think people, and I mean, even myself, when I'm not you know sitting down and thinking about it as hard as we're trying to think about it like that's how you frame forgiveness is like you're choosing not to pass a judgment on x person or x act or whatever and the way you've been talking about it just frames it in a completely 
different manner. Yeah. That's a, and again, it's interesting how much talking about forgiveness sort of invites the question of when should we forgive and is it a good thing? Yeah. And I, I, I try, I don't know how successful I am at this, but I try to avoid that kind of question because it's, it's again, it's forgiveness coincides with those seemingly undecidable things about how to reckon with evil. Who do, what do we think about ourselves as a, as a community? So I'm, I've, I find myself less interested in, in trying to figure out like when forgiveness is appropriate yeah. and more interested in just noticing that like sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's it's the greatest thing that happens and it's this this arrival of this this kind of blessing. Sometimes it's it's it itself seems downright evil and unjust. And in so far as forgiveness is a kind of perception that tries to look beyond what the law says about it about us, it's kind of an injustice. Maybe I'll qualify that or adjust that a little bit um, because we may think of justice as being beyond law. It's kind of mm-hmm. illegal um, because the law doesn't really function to to give rise to forgiveness, right? It's about guilt or innocence. It's about deciding finally, you know, how to deal with this person who's done this thing. Whereas I, I think forgiveness comes in sort of beyond that, which is also why I think I think it, forgiveness is often associated with religious language because it is it is that it is a kind of gesture that implies an appeal to something beyond beyond law. This is something that uh, Paul Ricoeur insists on in his essay, um, or it's an epilogue to one of his books, epilogues called Difficult Forgiveness. And he deals with, it's, it's, a, it's a long uh, epilogue, it's a long piece, but one of the, thing he, one of the things he tries to address there is whether, whether forgiveness is ever appropriate like within politics or within legal decisions. And he seems to suggest that it's usually inappropriate and politics just isn't set up to handle a gesture like forgiveness. And so it always enters the political realm, he says, incognito. Um, it's this sort of foreign, perhaps hidden, perhaps sort of shocking intervention in the regular political order. Um, so he has that to say about it. But he also says where we do find expressions of forgiveness is in the religions of the book in the Abrahamic faiths. That's where you see these sort of extra legal or extra political gestures towards this divine reconciliatory power mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and a, a, a while ago in a um, in a seminar on, on recur uh, here at ICS actually I it's where I sort of initially conceived of this this connection of thinking about the intersection of religion and forgiveness because I thought well if that's true if forgiveness is this thing that that doesn't align itself with politics very easily and if it does involve this kind of essential connection with religious language like maybe when maybe the appearance of forgiveness in in legal situations or in, in public, like in, in the political sphere, is roughly similar or parallel to the appearance of religion in, in public or in the political sphere. Um, and uh, I was very soon directed towards Hegel as, as someone who explores that very intersection. Um, so it was, it was, that was kind of the, the initial inspiration for this topic was think it was what Ricoeur had to say about this. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. Movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drinks we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Danielle, what's your pleasure? Well, my pleasure this week stems from uh, having my friend Ruby visit, who you met. You met Ruby. Mm -hmm. Ruby and I get on like a house on fire (laughs) but one of the things that amuses me about her is her fascination with cryptids oh which 
until very recently I thought was like a name for a Pokemon, but no, it's not. <laughs> it's like these kind of like Sasquatch and like Mothman things, oh, like these creatures right, yeah, yeah, that yeah. like Loch Ness that we don't quite know what they are or where they come from or if they're real and all these mm. things. And she loves those things. So I've learned a lot about those things because of her. And one of one of my favorites and also one of her favorites is the Wendigo, which is actually local to this area. Mm. And it's like the semi-cannibalistic kind of like creature. I don't know. It's like vaguely man-like lurking through the woods, mm. killing people. <laughs> Ruby also told me that there's this poem called The Wendigo by Ogden Nash, which I had never heard of. Mm. And she... How did she introduce it? She said she introduced it as containing her favorite description of time ever. Mm. And I was like, that's a weird thing to have a favorite of. And then I read it and then I understood. <laughs> so I just want to read it to you okay. so you can all share my pleasure. Sure. Uh, it's not very long. Here we go. Public reading of poetry. The Wendigo. The Wendigo. Its eyes are ice and indigo. Its blood is rank and yellowish. Its voice is hoarse and bellowish. Its tentacles are slithery and scummy, slimy, leathery. Its lips are hungry, blubbery, and smacky, sucky, rubbery. The Wendigo, the Wendigo, I saw it just a friend ago. Last night it lurked in Canada, tonight on your veranda. As you are lolling hammock-wise, it contemplates you stomach-wise. You loll, it contemplates, it lollops. The rest is merely gulps and gollops. <laughs> The whole end is just like, what? Oh, What's man. happening? But the, I saw you just, or I saw it just a friend ago a bit friend ago. is hilarious to me. And One friend ago. <laughs> and then you're eaten wow. and you're gone. So that's my pleasure. <laughs> Very seasonally appropriate uh, as well. Mm -hmm. I, where I grew up or kind of where I grew up or where I would go camping in the summer, there's the, in the Okanagan, there's the Ogopogo. Oh, the Ogopogo. similar to the Loch Ness, but oh, yes. in Lake Okanagan, I'm pretty sure. What about you? What's your pleasure? Well, we did go with with your friend to the Aga Khan Museum. Yes. And that's and you talking about her reminded me of that. That was very fun. I had a great time. Lots of very cool uh, Muslim art and and the especially the tile work in, in some of the mosques and stuff are so yeah, it's amazing. So pretty, all the teals and blues and stuff. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, lots of different ceramic work and like calligraphy and um, fabrics. What was the, there was that special exhibit that we went through too, the... Mm -hmm. the oh, the Lego one? Oh yeah, there was that one too. <laughs> There's a few different exhibits. It was, yeah, he made it, he made sculptures out of all black Lego. Yeah. Ikao Nimako. Yeah. So he's from Ghana, I think, and but came to Toronto. Yeah. There's also the like caravans of gold. So like this uh, industry in oh, yeah. the sub-Saharan and coastal mm -hmm. Africa. Mm -hmm. like trade routes and stuff that was pretty interesting yeah talking about the economics of trade and stuff across like even to china which is far yeah far <laughs> this far yeah and i what and the value of salt in places like the sahara where gold was pretty much equal distribution to or equal value to salt which yeah. is crazy yeah well i mean retroactively i'm glad to hear that that was your pleasure since i dragged <laughs> you along to that so <laughs> That's it for our show this week. We hope you'll stay tuned for the rest of our episodes this semester. 
If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow my co-host as at Beware the Yeti. You can also follow ICS at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on the radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. <laughs>